Alrighty. Hey, would you pray with me? Oh, those kids are having a fun time out there. I'm starting to pray and I'm distracted by their excitement. Do you wish you were out there instead? Hmm. We pray for those kids, Lord. Bless them. <laughs> hmm. Thank you for their enthusiasm and their joy. We pray your blessing on those uh, teachers and leaders. We pray that even as they meet, that they will be impacted by the wonder of the gospel of Jesus and may young lives be changed, courses set, characters forged. Lord, bless those teachers and leaders as they give and give and give again. Bless those kiddies. Lord, we ask that you'll protect them and minister to them and do a work in their lives for their generation. And we ask likewise for us that you'll meet with us now. That you'd speak to us. Feed us, correct us, teach us, comfort us. Lord, you know the things we need. We open our hearts before you and we invite you to do your work in our midst now. For your glory and praise and in your name we ask it. Amen. So um, there's ladders. Uh, you've seen them. <laughs> I've seen them. Uh, they're everywhere. In fact, wherever there are groups of people, there are ladders. Uh, you'll find them in, in families, in sporting groups, uh, at work in the office or on site, any social group, in neighbourhoods, in politics, uh, even in uh, royal families you will find ladders. Perhaps school was the, the, the first place that most of us uh, met ladders in, in a, a really clear way. And it didn't take us long to work out uh, the rules of, of how it works. Do you remember what it was in your school? It was who's the, who's the smartest, who gets the best marks, uh, Who's, who's the best at sport? Girls? Uh, who's the prettiest? Guys, who's the strongest? Who's the toughest? Or who's the funniest? Or who comes from the richest family? Who's got the best clothes? Uh, who, who talks the best? Or sometimes who talks the dirtiest? Who has the best toys? Do you remember that in school? And it was always... A ladder climbing exercise. And it didn't stop, did it, after school. So you get to uni or to the workplace and the ladders continue. You arrive in uni and you're, you're checking each other out. So who came from the best school? Uh, who got the best course, uh, the best grade? Who's in the best course? Who's at the best uni? Who has the best car? Who has the loudest car? We've got one of those that drives on our driveway. I almost went to stop him the other day and say, yeah... This tells me something, that the, the volume of your exhaust, you know. <laughs> who, has, um, who has the newest tech? Who has the best boyfriend or girlfriend? Uh, who looks the sharpest? Who's the most attractive? Who's in the in crowd? Who's the person with the best career prospects? Does it stop when you become parents? <laughs> no. Sometimes... 
parents will actually keep playing that game of ladders, uh, but they do it through their kids. Oh, see how important my kids are? (laughs) Now I feel good, right? Uh, And then comes social media. Does that help in this whole equation? No, it does not. It just accentuates and highlights this whole tendency of ours. So now it's who has the most likes, who has the most most followers, who has the most friends, who has the most views. It it just brings it to the fore. A question for you, does it stop in churches? (laughs) No. Ladder climbing is rife in churches. I was rereading a story, a favourite book of mine, David Hanson, The Art of Pastoring, and he talked about the first time he experienced ladder climbing in a um, Christian summer uh, camp in, in the US. And he said he could just see, oh, the speaker was really cool, the director was really cool, all of the dorm leaders were really cool, and they all hung out together. Does it, um, does it stop among pastors? No. No, sometimes uh, pastors' conferences can be the worst. <laughs> so this is part of our human condition. Uh, You do it, I've done it, we are forever comparing ourselves with others and working out the rules of how we gain dominance over the other person. And the whole object of the game is to get to the top of the ladder. And once you've got to the top, you've got to maintain your position at the top fiercely. So as we come to Matthew chapter 18, if you've got your Bibles there, you can turn with me to it. As we come to Matthew chapter 18, the disciples ask a question and it is a ladder climbing question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What they're saying is, Jesus, I know that you have brought the kingdom to planet earth. We've seen the kingdom of heaven arrive in your person and your ministry. This kingship, you've introduced it. And Jesus is the one who's already spoken about the the least or the greatest in the kingdom. The least in the kingdom being called greater than John the Baptist. They've just seen Jesus take three of the disciples up the mountain of transfiguration, leaving the other nine behind. So in their minds, they're thinking, there's a kingdom, Jesus is at the top, And there must be positions of power up for grabs. So, who's going to get it? Who's going to be up there at the top? Who's got the position? And so while they are all uh, jockeying for positions and box seats, they're preening themselves, they're puffing their chests out, they're polishing their gongs, they're arguing between each other, I I should be 2IC, no, I should be 2IC. Jesus spots a little child, catches his or her eye, he makes a gesture and he takes that little tacker and he plops that child right smack bang in the middle of this bickering group of disciples. And so right now we have disciples with their ladders and Jesus with their children, with, his, with his, a child. Ladders and children, that's what we're looking at this morning. This is the, the contrast that Jesus is going to draw out for us. 
in order to understand the significance of this contrast, you've, you've got to appreciate the status of children in Jesus' culture. So, in our uh, modern Western societies, children are often seen as very important. But in first century Judaism, they were not. Uh, granted, if a father had many children, that sort of pumped his status up. But even then, the children were a means to an end. They were not valuable in and of themselves. So listen to one commentator. In the affairs of people, children were unimportant. They could not fight. They could not lead. They had not had time to acquire worldly wisdom. They could not pile up riches. They counted for very little. They were insignificant, unimportant, and carried no status in society. So said Leon Morris. They were essentially occupying the position of a non-person. So into this contrast, disciples thinking ladder climbing, Jesus got a living, breathing object lesson smack bang in the middle of these bickering disciples. In the midst of this contrast, Jesus is about to deliver some lessons about the nature of his kingdom. And everything we thought we knew about the way that human society works is about to get tipped on its head. Jesus is a is going to confront our ingrained ways of thinking. And he's going to give us some contrary, upside-down lessons from what we assume is the norm in human society. So let's read the passage. Matthew 18, 1 to 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, Unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who humble themselves like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Just five verses for this morning. We're just going to look at three lessons from a child to give us insight into the nature of Jesus' kingdom. First one. How do I get in? Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here isn't even getting to their question yet of who's the greatest. He's going right back to the get-go. He's going even just to get into the kingdom for a start requires a different approach to what you're used to. And the fact that he says, unless you turn or change and become like assumes that that wasn't their position to start with, doesn't it? So, in other words, he's talking to these um, disciples who are bumping their chests up against each other as adults, and he's saying, you have to turn and become something that you're right now not in order to enter the kingdom. So, consider the contrast How do we normally gain entrance into esteemed circles in human society? We study hard, we work hard, we get recognised, we accumulate our certificates, our qualifications. We impose our significance into conversations. We prepare our resumes, sometimes with creative flourishes, you know. We polish them up, we speak ourselves up during interviews. You believe in yourself, you put yourself forward, you project importance, you act big. That's what human society says. Believe in yourself, push yourself forward, get in on your own merit. 
And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. Turn and become like a child to enter. So Jesus inverts it. He chooses a child to demonstrate this lesson. Not a self-made person, full of an awareness of their own importance and strength. He chooses a child. So to enter the kingdom in the first place requires a different approach. There's something about a childlike attitude that's necessary, essential, to even get into the kingdom. What is it? I think Jesus is highlighting a couple of attitudes. Um, Perhaps one is the dependency of children. I remember years ago, the way that, and some of you younger um, parents will know it right now. I remember my kids just uh, on a veranda somewhere and just coming up and running and saying, just flying off from the veranda, saying, catch me, Dad, you know, and there wasn't a thought that I would drop them. They were just so trusting and dependent. Catch me, Dad, they'd say. Do it again, Dad, you know. There's a dependency in children that I think Jesus is highlighting. Not childlike, not childishness, childlikeness. He's drawing positive qualities here. Trusting attitude. There's another one, uh, helplessness. I saw this most recently, not in my children, they're all growing now, but actually in our dog. Um, Sarah was at work and uh, Nico was really lethargic and I I took her to the vet. And uh, so I'm in the vet's office, there the vet takes her out for a test and he comes and brings her back in and she just sat down next to me and she leant her head against my shin as if to say, I'm sick and I need your help. (laughs) I rang up Sarah and I told her that experience. I just choked up because it was the helplessness of this creature. Jesus is referring to some quality in children. See, adults say, I'm good. I'm all over this. I can get in. I should be accepted, you know, on my merits. I'll, I'll be a great addition to your team, you know. But children say... I'm helpless, I need you, I'm going to trust you, I can't do it in and of myself. So, I have to ask you this morning, every one of you, without apology, have you taken this step of acknowledging your dependency on God, your helpless condition before God, and actually entered the kingdom? Now, don't apologise for that. Because I know so many people can be part of church for years and years and years. But the fact of the matter is, you've never actually entered the kingdom. You've learned some religious behaviors so that it satisfies other people. But are you in the kingdom? Have you taken that step of acknowledging before God, I'm dependent on you. I'm helpless without you. I need you to do something for me that I can't do. Or are you still saying, yeah, he's going to accept me on my merits? So I'm not wanting to be offensive, but it doesn't matter how nice or good or moral or cultured or loving or caring you are. God says that there's some things going against us that we are powerless to overcome in our own strength. We cannot clear up our past record. We cannot change our character to make it something that's appropriate before God. We cannot change our internal bias. 
We cannot release ourselves from being under captivity to the prince of darkness. The Bible's confronting about that. We, we cannot front up to God and negotiate terms and say, hey, can we just arrange some bargain here? We cannot get ourselves out from under deserving his wrath and say, can I just get into your good books if I try hard enough? And we cannot overcome death. So it requires, excuse me if I'm confrontational, but I want you to know, have you taken that step of acknowledging before God, Father God, I need you to cleanse me and forgive me. I need you to give me a new heart. I need you to give me a new desire to live for you. I need you to release me from the dominion of darkness and bring me into the kingdom of your son. I need you to declare me right before your presence because none of my efforts can achieve that. I need you and what you've done at the cross to release me from any prospect of deserving wrath and instead receive your unending embrace. I need to be reinstated before your presence as a child and know the hope of eternal life, hope beyond the grave. Friends, I ask you, have you taken that step even just to get into the kingdom? Not fronting up to Jesus and say, I'll be a great addition to your team. No, declaring, I need you. I'm going to run off the edge of the veranda and just say, catch me, Dad. I'm going to acknowledge my helplessness. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. How did we get in? Turn and become like a child to enter. And then, I think Jesus is saying, it's the way in that actually determines and sets the conditions, the trajectory for the way on. So the second question is, well, how do I advance? How do I advance in the kingdom? And Jesus says, those who humble themselves like this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you've come in via a step of humility and childlike dependency and acknowledging helplessness. And now Jesus says the way to, to become great, to, um, to be recognized in some level of greatness in the kingdom is actually via humility. Humble yourself. John Dixon, he's got a superb book called Humilitas. He defined, he defined humility as the willingness to hold power in service of others. Good definition. The willingness to hold power in service of others. So it's not that you're powerless, but you hold it to serve others. He identified three important aspects. He, he said that humility, this act of, of humbling yourself, presupposes a position of dignity. You can't lower yourself unless you were first in a position that was elevated. He says that it's, it's willing. It's a choice we make. If somebody else makes the choice for us, it's not called humility. It's called humiliation. But when we humble ourselves, it's actually a choice we make. And he said thirdly, I thought very interestingly, humility is social. It only becomes apparent within groups. You cannot demonstrate humility deserted alone on some island in the Pacific Ocean. But put us in a group, and that's where humility will be demonstrated. Will I actually give deference to another? Will I lower myself to help another? So again, consider the contrast. We see it everywhere, don't we? 
Who remembers Leighton Hewitt and the way he used to play tennis? You remember after he scored great hits? You remember his signature action? That's right. It's like all the arrows are pointing in. You know, look at me. I dominate on this course. Court. Um, some of you will remember Muhammad Ali, the boxer, and he was known for his theatrics. There's a story, I believe it's true, and John Dixon refers to it in his book. But he was um, on some international flight and the announcement came over the radio, please strap yourselves in, we're about to encounter some turbulence, which normally means, you know, it's going to get really rocky. So the steward or stewardess is walking up and down the aisles just checking that people have strapped themselves in. Um, the stewardess comes to Muhammad Ali and just points out he hasn't done this. And his response was, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the stewardess replied, Superman don't need no aeroplane. <laughs> but that, was, that just is enigmatic, isn't it? Of this kind of, I'm good, I've got it together, I'm the boss in my domain. This is pride. Human society tells us that. It says, strut your stuff, climb to the top, push yourself forward, assert yourself, make a name for yourself, ascend into greatness. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. Be a child. Be unassuming. Be willing to take a lower status to benefit others. Have a realistic opinion of ourselves and divest ourselves for others' good. Use our power to help and build others up. Descend into greatness. That's how it works in Jesus' kingdom. I remember a wonderful example of that kind of humility. It was at Nolvos' funeral a number of years ago now, up at Parkerville Baptist. And Steve McAlpine, I've shared this story before, Steve McAlpine was giving one of the eulogies and he spoke about the way that Dr. Vos was so learned. How many PhDs did he have? And all of his experience. And then Steve made this comment. He said, the irony was the most interesting person in the room was always more interested in everybody else in the room. Isn't that a lovely quality? I've thought about that statement many times since and thought that embodies humility. How do you become great in the kingdom? You become great by always being interested in the other, not not putting the focus on us, giving, service. So let me ask you, Have you been hunting out ladders in the kingdom? Have you been trying to find some ways that you can ascend in the church? Are you working out the rules of how you could actually push yourself forward and and occupy a position of dominance? In Jesus' kingdom, you can either ladder climb Or you can be a child, but you cannot do both. And if we insist on ladder climbing in the church, we will never attain to true greatness in Jesus' estimation. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. So how do you get in? How do you ascend? And then I think the third point is, who do I mix with in the kingdom? So Jesus says... Whoever welcomes one such child, the child now is still 
living, breathing a little tacker right in the middle of these bickering crowd and he's bringing lessons out from this child to explain the nature of his kingdom. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And I think now the child has become a metaphor for anybody who is considered lower in status as a disciple in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying you have to welcome, embrace, recognize, give entrance to them into your company, uh, have a favorable attitude to them, and do so in a way that Jesus would do it in his name. And here's the mind bender, that if we welcome lower esteemed disciples like Jesus would in his name, it's actually the equivalent of welcoming Jesus. That there's some way in which when we embrace others, it's indicative of the way that we have actually embraced Christ. And so, again, consider the contrast. How do we normally get ahead in society? You know how we do it. We mix with the right people. You get on LinkedIn. I think it's one of the worst things I ever did was to get onto LinkedIn. I was getting all these invitations. If I haven't accepted yours, please forgive me. I'm just sick of it. I should have never done it. But that's the way we get in. You know, you're always looking for ways that we can do lunch with the powerful people. Drop names of people that I've been with. You know, you, you mix with the people of influence, the people who are going somewhere, the movers and the shakers. Sometimes you see this at pastors' conferences. That people will want to talk with the main speaker or with the pastors of the big churches. You'll see it in your settings too. That somebody will be talking with you and then you'll notice that their eyes are glazing over and they've spotted somebody behind your shoulder that's more important than you, and they make a, a speedy sort of wrap-up of the conversation with you and move on to somebody else. Ouch. So human society says, make sure you mix with the right crowd, network with the powerful, the successful, move with the movers. Jesus says, not in my kingdom. Embrace the humble follower of Jesus, the seemingly insignificant, be willing to befriend and associate with those who have no reputation, no status, they just love Jesus. Jesus here is talking about that attitude, inverting it all, talking about that attitude of embracing other disciples who may not be considered important or significant, but you actually welcome them, befriend them, associate with them, and you're doing it out of an attitude that reflects the heart of Jesus. Have you seen people do that? Have you seen examples of people who go out of their way to welcome others who are uh, considered unimportant, overlooked? I've been rereading Philip Yancey's book, Soul Survivor, and he uh, talks about a number of, of people that have really impacted his life. The story I've been reading most recently is about his interactions with a a chap called Dr. Paul Brand. Some of you may remember his books from years ago um, about pain. He wrote a lot about pain. Philip Yancey talks about the way that he first met Dr. Paul Brand on the banks of the Mississippi River in the only leprosorium, is that the way you pronounce that, uh, in the continental US. And Dr. Brand had international reputation. He had worldwide lectureships. And yet when Philip Yancey first met him, he described the irony of it. He said, I awaited our interview in a cubbyhole of an office, suggestive, uh, not suggestive, sorry, not suggestive of any 
such renown. And so Brand uh, spent his days researching treatments for those who are suffering from leprosy and caring for victims. This is what Yancey wrote. Most speakers and writers I knew were hitting the circuit, packaging and repackaging the same thoughts in different books and giving the same speeches to different crowds. Meanwhile, Paul Brand, who had more intellectual and spiritual depth than anyone I'd ever met, gave many of his speeches to a handful of leprosy patients in a hospital's Protestant chapel. At the Brand's insistence, Yancey wrote, I attended the Wednesday evening prayer service during my week-long visit. And if I recall correctly, there were five of us in the choir and eight in the audience. And to that motley crew, Brand proceeded to deliver an address worthy of Westminster Abbey. Obviously, he had spent hours meditating and praying over that one sermon. It mattered not that we were a tiny cluster of half-dead nobodies in a sleepy chapel. He spoke as an act of worship, as one who truly believed that God shows up when two or three are gathered together in his name. What an attractive quality it is. Going out of your way to care for, embrace, welcome, receive those who might be overlooked and dismissed by others. So can I ask you, who do you mix with? Who do you associate with? Are you quite discriminating about it? Are you quite careful about who you mix with? Do you size people up about where they fit on the ladder and then decide whether you should actually befriend them? Do you actually form cliques of the in crowd and then you serve as a gatekeeper to say, oh, they're not actually allowed in our group because they're not cool enough or whatever the standard is? Are you doing that? Are we discriminating in who we embrace and talk with after church? Have we got our in-groups? See, Jesus would say that if, if we are not actually welcoming other seemingly insignificant disciples, it might be an indication we've never actually welcomed Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. So let's, let's conclude. Just to recapitulate. Jesus' kingdom is upside-down to everything we thought we knew about how to get ahead in human groups. Jesus requires a childlike a dependency and helplessness just to enter for a start. He commends humility as the only way to become really great. And he demands that we embrace the seemingly insignificant and unimportant. Morley Baptist, what kind of a church will we be? Will we be a ladder-climbing church? Will we be a church that is uh, characterised by a, a, a dominance, a, a self-promoting, the, the cliques and the in-crowds? Or will we be a church that actually resonates with this quality of Jesus' kingdom. See, if we want to be part of Jesus' kingdom church, it's upside down. Normal rules don't apply here. There are different values in operation. So how do we do it? Well, here's some, some practical things that I think we need to really enflesh this. Head, heart, and hand. Firstly, heart. 
we need a new heart. We need a God-centered heart instead of a self-centered heart. If we recognize, wow, I'm always putting myself forward, perhaps it's an indication that we haven't actually been changed on the inside. And so come to God and say, I, I need you to do a heart transplant. I need you to take away from me this self-centered heart and give me a new heart that's actually oriented around you as central. And then, my friends, saturate yourself. Slake your soul thirst in the love and value of the Father so that you know you are loved by God. And you know what that does? It means it releases you to be able to give to others and you're not looking to every interaction to pump yourself up because you're already full with the Father's love and value. Yeah? And when we slake our thirst with the fact the Father loves me, He could not love me more. That's what releases us into glorious self-forgetfulness, to be able to give to other people. So there's a heart issue. There's a head issue. I think we need new attitudes. The Apostle Paul said it, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let it set the agenda of how we think we have to get in and go on, and who we mix with. No, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Have different attitudes. Paul will write, in Philippians chapter 2, in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Consider others more important than yourself. I'll never forget one chap who shared at a pastor's conference. He said a lot of pastors use people to make their ministry great. He said, I want to use my ministry to make people great. Isn't that good? That's what I want to do. I want to use whatever God has given me to make you great, you see. I want you to flourish. I want to have that attitude that says, I want to see you as a church be the best you could be. <laughs> That's a mental change. So there's a heart issue, there's a head issue. And now just some practical things, some hand things, okay, some skills. We need to adopt some new practices. Here's three simple ones conversations so when you break after church and you have conversations together can I just be a pastor for a second and say think in advance what are some questions I can ask of people do you know how rare that can be but actually be thinking of the other so instead of meeting someone saying hey I've got a great story to tell you about me this week you go hey tell me about you and then have the second question that shows that you really want to continue that conversation not just you know waiting until the conversation turns back to me conversations ask questions friendships be on the lookout for people that don't feel like they're fitting in that don't feel like they've been embraced and go out of our way to Paul said it in Romans 12, associate with the lowly and do it with joy. Our friendships and our service. Be willing to do the things that are obscure, that won't get noticed because we know the Father notices everything. So church, I encourage us today, if we are to be 
genuine kingdom church, uh, let's forsake and be done with this ladder climbing business. Let's adopt this childlike humility that's just characteristic of Jesus' kingdom. Come on in, you know. It is beautiful inside. Let me pray and then Jared's going to lead us around the Lord's table. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray this morning if there are friends here today who have not yet entered the kingdom, would you please grant grace that even now they might humbly declare before you they need you. They need you. Lord, I ask even this morning, may there be people who just come before you in repentance and in humble faith Place their trust in Christ. Father, I pray that you'll continue to make us a group of people that descend into greatness, that actually measure greatness in terms of service, that look out for others, that welcome and embrace others. I pray that you'll destroy ladder climbing, you'll destroy inside cliques. I pray that there'll be something about the DNA and the fabric and the culture of this place that just epitomizes the beauty of humility. In Jesus' name we ask it.